Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Digging in the dirt and pulling up weeds is so last century. Whatever you thought about farming is being reimagined, with a new generation plowing the industry into the future. Leaving behind both the tools and the rural open spaces, which have so long defined traditional farming, more and more today's farms are in urban areas, with vertical farming taking agriculture to new heights, while ocean farming expands the industry's depths, all in a sustainable manner. We'll talk to two pioneers who are redefining the farm and expanding on the evolution of agriculture. Later in the show, the question at the heart of a new novel, how can not being the only one turn out to be a bad thing? I really want this book to just be fun for people. There are so many serious things in it. I want people to to really chew on all of the topics about, you know, code switching, microaggressions, work-life balance, all of it. But I also want it to be fun. Zakia Dalila Harris's new thriller, The Other Black Girl, is the it book for summer 2021. And it's our July selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, Bren Smith, executive director and co-founder of Green Wave, a nonprofit that supports ocean farmers. Bren is also the owner of Thimble Island Ocean Farm and author of Eat Like a Fish, My Adventures Farming the Ocean to Fight Climate Change. Welcome, Bren. Uh, so fun to be here. Thanks. I'm glad to have you. Also with me, John Friedman, Chief Operating Officer and co-founder of Freight Farms, a Boston-based ag tech company that has spearheaded container farming. Hi, John. Hey, Callie. Nice to be here. I'm just delighted to talk to both of you. So first, I think we have to set the table uh, so that people sort of can go along, and I can go along for that matter, (laughs) from thinking in our minds of that big fields of corn somewhere in Iowa or Idaho or wherever it is, now to smaller companies like you you both represent and the way that your crops are brought in done differently. So I'm going to start with you John first. Tell me about container farming. When I think about containers, I think about little boxes um <laughs> that sort of people use for their flowers in the spring. But you you describe. Yeah, it's a it's a little bit different size and scale of container. These are the containers that you would see coming in uh, on the ocean freighters, those 40 by eight by nine and a half containers. And we actually gravitate towards those because that's a structure that everyone in the world has infrastructure to move around, to bring off boats and into different places where there's a lot of places in the world that don't have access to climate conditions that can grow food and don't have access to proper soil. So we're really looking at a way that we can decentralize and distribute growing platform that's the same for everybody. So, so when you say hydroponic farms, these environments where you grow your vegetables, herbs and flowers, what does that mean? 
Yeah, so inside the container, we have a hydroponic system that is running uh, completely without soil. So we're actually putting the nutrients into water uh, and distributing that to the roots and making a, a complete controlled environment within those four walls. What that allows us to do is actually make the perfect day of summer or the perfect day of the year for that plant and really tune the conditions to pull out different attributes in the plant that just wouldn't be found anywhere in the world. So we can really excite some of the physical or taste or plant characteristics that people want to see. And you do that through tech, really. You can make the perfect environments through technology. That's right. So we do this all through our cloud system that is uh, really controlling every aspect of the conditional response. We don't believe in chemical or herbicides, pesticides, anything like that to help the plants grow. We just want to do this based on conditional response. So it's a really a nurture mechanism. So to be clear, you know, the farmers that I mentioned at the top of the show who are out there with the big crops out in Iowa or uh, Idaho, they're using technology too. So tell me how, what they're doing, because they use a lot with some of the heavy equipment and some other ways of determining how they may set their crops up. It's different from what you're doing. Yeah. Well, if you're thinking of that traditional big open field with tractors and a lot of large irrigation, we're actually going to that smaller footprint and building a more distributed network of growers. We really want to lower that entry point for people who are interested in farming that might not have access to land, might not have that know-how of farming. And we want to bring that, that barrier to entry all the way down so that anybody who is interested or anybody who has a need in the supply chain, which is quite a lot of people, actually. There's a lot of people who are outside the centralized food distribution plan um, that need access either to something stable or something that is unique culturally or regionally that they just can't import. So this is a way for anybody to get in the game mm. and then scale up if they, they see that path. That's my guest, John Friedman. He's chief operating officer and co-founder of Freight Farms, a Boston-based ag tech company that has spearheaded container farming. So over to you, Bren Smith, your executive director and co-founder of Green Wave, and this is a nonprofit that supports ocean farmers. Now, we're all trying to get our heads around ocean farming because all I can think about are fishermen, but you're doing something different. Yeah, I mean, I used to be a fisherman, you know, dropped out of high school and uh, to fish the globe, but I've ended up what we're calling regenerative ocean farming. And, you know, imagine an underwater garden where we're growing a mix of shellfish and plants, so seaweeds, uh, using the entire water column. So I grow kelp, which is a type of seaweed, vertically downwards. Next to that are mussels in these sort of mussel socks that look like sausages, then oysters and clams, and really finding those nutrient sweet spots up and down the water column to do polyculture, to do what Mother Nature does, which is grow reefs. And it's interesting what John said, because that replication is so key in climate change. Like, how do we get farms started, minimal capital costs, and then replicate them as fast as possible? And we think of them as a sort of nail salon models of the sea. My farm took $20,000 $20,000 a boat and 20 acres to build, you know, that just allows regular folks like me, former fishermen, to get into a uh, an industry that when you think of agriculture in the ocean, ocean farming, you think big salmon pens growing tuna, things like that, and we're coming at it from a different direction. So I'm curious about who are the people who are reaching out to you who are interested in doing this? Bryn, you've just told us a little bit about, you know, how you move from being a fisherman into this. But now on the people who are seeing what you're doing and trying to follow in your footsteps, who are they? Yeah, I mean, 
some come to it from an environmental perspective, right? So they love that the farms have zero inputs. We don't use fresh water. We don't use fertilizer. We don't have feed. Our crops capture carbon and nitrogen. They're sort of the tree sequoias underwater. So they come with a real climate focus. Then other folks, we've got all around the country, indigenous programming that really want to figure out a way to get more food from the sea. It's really a food security issue for their communities and also really interested in restoration, right? Reforestation, using these farms to rebuild the natural environment. We have on our waiting list right now in the U.S. at Greenway for a training program, 8,000 people that want to learn how to farm, which is quite frightening, quite honestly. Wow. But I think it shows the amount of energy. And so, you know, for example, Dune Lankard up in Alaska, he was one of the folks that fought the Exxon spill, the Valdez back in the day. Fisherman called me one day and said, Bren, the fish didn't come home. Up in Cordova. And and so we've started working together to get a thousand acres distributed through like 10 and 20 acre farms throughout um, his region. There's Catherine Puckett in Rhode Island and she grows oysters, clams and kelp. And she has a pink boat. She calls herself the oyster wench. And she's got an all male crew. Right, who can work year round because they've got something to do all year round, but they hate working on a pink boat. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're grumbling about that, but they got these jobs, and maybe that's the future of this, right? Like you know, women, indigenous communities um, being in the in in the front of building and shaping this new little economy that we're trying to build out there. So, same question to you, John Friedman. Who are the people coming to you to do the kind of container farming that you do? Yeah, I would say similar to Bren, we're seeing a lot of folks who are outside the food system that really need access. And so there's we see a lot of need for food security in rural areas, but also island areas, anywhere that people are shipping in food and, and the fresh, healthy stuff is the first to go because it doesn't ship well. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of programmatic need for farming. Uh, we're seeing that in the universities and schools, as well as in communities and, and building equity within these communities that don't have a renewable source of health or jobs. So the Bahamas islands, as you've just said, struggle to grow their own food because of a lack of land and extreme weather, importing over 90 percent of their produce. So here's a clip from opening day of Eden Farms in the Bahamas, which uses freight farms technology, your technology, to grow crops. And we're so excited to be bringing fresh, hyper-local food to our fellow Bahamians, showing off, man, technology and agriculture. This was a huge opportunity for us to showcase what some young Bahamians can do when they put their minds to it, even in the heart of a pandemic. And on a number of fronts, uh, these visionaries, these agribusiness persons, have introduced additional technology, smart agriculture, precision agriculture, that will attract more young persons uh, to, to agriculture. I have to say, John, you know, I would have thought of the Bahamas, that lush, you know, beach place. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have thought of those islands as a place struggling to grow produce. It's funny. <laughs> that is something that it is easily overlooked. We, we think about these very tropical and nice when we think of vegetation, but it's not the type of vegetation that grows food very well. Sometimes you'll see fruit grow pretty well in tropical areas, but the humidity and the soil and usually that, that very sandy areas aren't great for sustaining food production. That's something we learned along the way as well, that how many islands are in that position that this type of technology can really give them the footing to build up their own renewable source. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Bryn Smith of Green Wave, a nonprofit that supports ocean farmers, and John Friedman of Freight Farms, an ag tech company spearheading container farming. We're discussing the future of farming and accessibility into the industry. So what you're both doing, it seems to me, is a part now of a movement. I keep hearing these stories and seeing these stories of, first, younger people who had no farming background, become attracted to farming, both the kind that you're doing, and also even some of the soil-based, more traditional kind, except they're doing it in a different way. I was quite taken, and I think millions of other viewers have been taken with a documentary called Biggest Little Farm. It's a 2019 documentary about a couple aiming to make a biodiverse, eco-friendly farm. My wife Molly and I set out to create a farm with a biological system capable of regenerating itself, unlike how it was treated in the past. The chemical sprays had killed most all of its biodiversity. No birds, bees, or butterflies. The soil was rock hard and dead. Our hope was to rebuild this farm without the use of conventional pesticides and antibiotics. And most farmers called our mission naive. Our version of a farm would be different. Plants, wildlife, livestock, all working together. Here they are, Emma the pig and Mr. Greasy the rooster, friends for life. <laughs> we wanted to believe that everything had a purpose. Even the pests have a role to play. Now, just to add a little something, the guy who's talking is the filmmaker and the farmer, and he documented their story for over seven years and the ups and downs of trying to turn a piece of land that had just been overused into what they wanted to see, which was this biodiverse, eco-friendly farm, and what had happened as a result of disturbing the natural processes and how hard it was. So, the overall mission, of course, is, is sustainability, and that seems to me to be the underpinning of what both of you two are doing and what is attracting new people to the field like that gentleman and his wife. So let's talk about sustainability and biodiversity in each of your arenas because you can, John Friedman, control that with however you set up your your uh, technology, right? That's right. So what we're seeing in all of our farms is a whole new era of crop varieties that you really just wouldn't see on the market. I think what, the exciting thing that we think about when we look at this smaller, decentralized, distributed model is it's really similar to that uh, that centralized manufacturing model that got disrupted by 3D printers and how much innovation came out of that. People who are never into engineering or product design were now able to take their idea and bring it from zero to one. And so seeing that in a plant production in a food production way has been amazing. Seeing what people can do with plants from taste to texture to uh, shape, it's been really amazing to watch our network of growers experimenting and finding new opportunities for plants. I also want to point out that there are people, uh, Bren, who have gotten into your community, the Green Wave community, also because 
they were very drawn by the sustainability of what happens. What John is able to do controlling with technology, you're sort of following that naturally under the water. So here's kelp farmer Susie Flores, who is a part of the Green Wave community, speaking about how she got into ocean farming. My name is Susie Flores, and I am a executive market development manager at McGraw-Hill Education. And on the side, I am a kelp farmer. I had heard about seaweed farming, and I wanted to grow some just for consumption. The more that I looked into it and the more I read about it, I realized that it's also a fantastic thing to do for the environment. And then once we saw that there was a possible economic upside for it, we decided to give it a shot. It's farming, just like somebody who has a tomato farm or you know, some sort of vegetable garden. It's just I do it out on the water instead of on land. And we don't have to add any fertilizer at all. We're just kind of taking something that's happening naturally and trying to organize it into one location so that we can make the most of what's growing. Uh, Brent, is that hard for people to get their minds around that it's farming, it's just underwater? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because, I mean, John and I are doing replication, trying to do low cost, but we're in such different environments. I mean, he is able to 100% control what's going on in there. I have zero control. Like my soil turns over a thousand times a day. Imagine that, right? I can't augment with fertilizer. I can't build greenhouses and hoop houses. I like my business partner, my, my development partner is the ocean. And all I can do is say, hey, ocean, what do you want me to grow? Like what are the climate friendly crops we need to grow in this era? And then grow those and move them to market. The other piece here is, you know, like, so we get we're like Susie is amazing. We get young land-based farmers who can't afford land and buildings, but you come out to our acreage and it's $25 to $50 an acre out where we are. So there's this access there. But like, I'm not an environmentalist. I just grew up in Newfoundland and I'm a hunter-gatherer. Yeah, I was told that environmentalism was about birds and bees and bears. And so I just said, no, that's not what I am. Hmm. But it turns out when, as I went through the fishery and the cod stocks crashed in Newfoundland, 30,000 people thrown out of work overnight, you find out like, oh, there aren't going to be any jobs on a dead ocean, right? That this is a kitchen table. This is an economic issue. So I'm in this because I want to keep the cultural tradition of fishing, which is like a job you can write a song about. There are certain jobs in the economy, coal workers, steel workers, farmers, fishermen, that are so core to our identity. And you sing sea shanties, right? There are no songs about lawyers, right? Well, no good songs about lawyers, so lots of bad ones, but lots of them about those that feed and power and build of the country. And that's like the question for me is how do we create a new food system, a climate economy that fills people's souls, give them agency so they get up every day and apply that blue collar innovation out in the water trying to grow food in this very volatile era, which is climate change. So, mm. so it, it's interesting how similar and I think how different John and I's model are. Well, I think it's clear that uh, a lot of people would be attracted to what both of you are doing driven by the the climate change issues and and the the need and the desire to find other ways of of uh, farming that don't add additional harm to the environment. So any any way that that can happen, people are really moving in that direction and and economically that's going to be where a lot of interest and and funding is going as well. What is always interesting, I think both of you will agree, is that transition period from one thing that we're used to to another thing that we haven't been used to. So I note, John, that you have a partnership with the ICA Maxi, a Swedish grocery chain where they're very excited about taking your products. We just heard from the Bahamas about their ability to grow produce. But I'm also reminded that people are like, hydrophonic, it doesn't taste good. So how do you respond to that? 
Oh, tis great. Uh, <laughs> that's I think, what people I think say. That, I think that's a the misnomer of uh, early technology, maybe a little over a decade ago. But uh, the the ways we've been able to advance hydroponic uh, technology, and you know, it's more than that. It's it's climate and it's the recipes that that you can create. I think what we're we're seeing a lot of is just industries you wouldn't expect coming into this market. And we're really excited about that. We're really excited about uh, people starting this in eight to 10 hours a week on top of their current job and then moving into this being their full-time job. So I think like Bren, we're seeing a new generation of farmers kind of taking hold and they're celebrating that around tech and finding these new market opportunities. Uh, we're also seeing some institutional players come in, involved. And we're seeing schools putting this into curriculum because they know the next generation of farmers need to start now. So that was another part of my question about the scaling. Mm -hmm. Because again, if I go back to that fictional Idaho or Iowa farmer, I think huge. And and mm -hmm. you've said to me, you've corrected me that container farming is kind of big, but it's small compared to you know what we're accustomed to seeing out there in the wide open spaces. So how do you scale it up so that if we want to move in a sustainable situation, with access to a lot of fruits and vegetables you could not grow otherwise. How does that happen? Well, I think the the first step is growing food where it's consumed. So looking at on-site production rather than taking a part of the world that is naturally growing something else and destroying it to grow a monocrop. That's what we want to avoid. And that's what we want to kind of peel back and let nature do its thing again. So in those very few areas where the climate is okay to grow food production, we are sacrificing some of the other plants, vegetation, and animals that were naturally living there. So any way we can redistribute that locally and give that land back in a way, I would say, you know, we are we are up against, uh, you know, 10 years ago we were, and, and we're back here again in a super drought, looking at California, which is the number one place that all of us get our leafy greens, lettuces, and, and vegetables. And so how's that going to play out over the next 10 years? I, I don't think well, and I don't think anybody should be betting on a centralized plan at this point. And actually, you know, globally, this is an issue because there's conversation about hunger in Sudan again. And so that's that's part and parcel as well. You're talking about the same issues still exist that existed some decades ago when there was a huge problem with not only drought, but, you know, absence of, of food that could easily grow there. So we're stuck in this moment where big is necessary, right? We have to grow a ton of food, population rise. We're going to, we're having more pressure on our food system. And then on the other side, small is beautiful, right? So this, the food system is sort of split up between that debate. I think we come in a bit differently, which is replication is powerful, right? So our view is, you know, rather than a thousand acre farm, have 10 hundred acre farms or reef modeled. So, you know, we, we like 25 to 50 farms in an area, seafood hub, processing center, ring of entrepreneurs doing value added products. And then you replicate that reef everywhere. There's a Home Depot up and down your coast, right? And if you do replication, it allows community benefit as opposed to vertical integration. And you can have a huge impact. If you were to take less than 5% of U.S. waters and do a network of regenerative ocean farms, you could offset the entire carbon emissions of the agricultural sector of the state of California, right? Wow. So that adds up to something big, but you've got tens of thousands of people farming, you've got people in hatcheries, you, you don't have this agricultural model of a, the benefits concentrating to a few folks at the top, but rather you're weaving social justice into the system. And I think that's why we're excited is 
got, is this a chance to do food right? Can you build something from the bottom up, take all those lessons from the last hundred years growing food and really do it in a way that I think we're proud of and, and that sort of inspires hope for all of those folks in the blue economy. So this feels like a small question then based on what you just talked about, changing the world, and I'm going to ask, but does it taste good, kelp? <laughs> no, it's a great question. Like, I'm not an environmentalist, nor am I a foodie. I eat at the gas station most nights. My favorite dish is the fish sandwich at a McDonald's. That's like my private safe space is to sit in the parking lot and eat that, right? But, but it's what the ocean wants us to grow is this weird stuff of seaweed. And I'm the worst advocate for seaweed. (laughs) But that's not my job. My job is to grow it. And luckily, there's this moment in America right now where we're at this incredibly creative culinary space where it's not just high-end restaurants, but chefs are trying to make sort of disgusting food delicious. That's what they're put on (laughs) earth to do. And if they can't make seaweed delicious, they can't make health delicious, they should go get another job. Like this is in this moment in history, they have to make climate cuisine beautiful and um, appetizing. Well, we so here's some examples like Brooks Headley, who was a pastry chef, then specialized in making making vegetables unhappy. He's on the Lower East Side. And he took the kelp and made barbecue kelp noodles with parsnips and breadcrumbs. Right. So you have this and the kelp is just strips of kelp. That's the noodles. So you get that heat of the barbecue sauce, the crunch of the uh, breadcrumbs, that roundness of the um, uh, parsnips. And you just have something that people don't blink at. So we've got kelp curries and chutneys and all these different things in a company like Akua is combining land and sea, which is so important. I'm not sure why we've got seafood and then land food. They've got a mushroom and kelp burger that's out that's just really, really great. And I think they've really cracked the sort of code of desuchifying and making seaweeds just a sort of center center of the plate. Well, you know, I am... Uh... I love seaweed, the the other kind, you know, the the green kind. I've I can snack on those, uh, on the flat sheets of it, and you know, certainly at Japanese restaurants you have it in a salad. It's delicious. But kelp, I'm not sure I've ever had. Though I looked for the recipes because I wanted to be able to see for myself. Well, is this something I would eat? And um, it looks like the kelp pesto recipes sounded quite good. I found one for kelp slaw. And then the one that used the noodles, because the kelp, as you look at it, it kind of looks like flat, uh, big fat noodles. But if you would yep. shred them, you end up with something that looks like glass noodles. And that looked pretty tasty. Yeah. But I have to say, so I, I discovered in doing this that there's different kinds of kelps. As people were referring to sugar kelp as opposed to something called dulse kelp. So what you do with that is you fry it and you add it to popcorn. That looked pretty good. Got to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you really dug into this. You're, you're very perfect. I mean, so it turns out in the book, I, I went and looked for what's been the use of seaweeds in, in uh, Western culinary uh, traditions. And it turns out it was used all the time. Anybody lived in the ocean, seaweeds was a, was a core part of the cuisine. So it was like an, it was a bar snack in Scotland. It was used in breads in Ireland, fermented in Germany and, and, and France. There was the kelp highway up South America, where, where actually the whole migration patterns were following the kelp, and it was a core food source. I'm from Newfoundland, and, and um, there's like incredible kelp gins that people make that oh, are absolutely wow. okay. delicious. It's just that it was pushed off the plate 
by industrial ag and soy quite, quite honestly pushed it off. And that we're at this moment where soy prices are going to get more expensive because of water costs, fertilizer costs. And I think seaweeds can move to the center of the plate again um, uh, because it's going to be such uh, affordable food. But the other thing I'd say is, you know, the challenge is changing taste is slow. It happens and we can do it. And if chefs can bring their talent, but climate changes, the clock is ticking. You know, we've got a decade or so. So we can change. We need whole leaf strategies. So we shift taste while also we figure out other uses for these crops. So our kelp is used for fertilizer and compost. So the waste, which is great because it captures nitrogen and, and carbon and then gets it into the soil for land-based farmers. It's used for straws, um, seaweed-based straws and packaging. And that just allows us to weave it into other industries and make sure that we're having a climate impact based on everything we're growing off of our farms. So a question to both of you now. So start with you, John. We're looking at as the future of farming, what you're already doing. But that's not future. That's current, actually. But So what do you say as you look forward to what can happen with freight farms and the technology of container farms? How do you see that growing? And a little bit back to something you mentioned about the supply chain. This seems to me to be an interrupter in the supply chain situation. So as part of the future of container farming, uh, will that drive interest, more interest in it because of that? Yeah, certainly we've seen a renewed focus on our supply chain through the pandemic. Uh, I think everybody has had an experience where they have just run out of local restaurants to order from over this time and wish there was something else and definitely something more healthy. But it's a little bit bigger than that. I think we've noticed how the supply chain globally has had a lot of trouble shifting with some new trends. So you know, we're seeing pockets of supply chain issues all over the world. And, you know, when you have a community who is relying on one source of getting produce in or getting your food in, that is a, it's a really tough place to be. And so if prices go up, that means that food is off the menu. So think about how many restaurateurs, chefs really have to dictate their menu, not based on what they want to make, but what they can get and at what price. And that really dictates a lot of what we eat at the end of the day, that availability. So we see we see distributed farming as a huge part of the next chapter. And and for freight farms, it's it's continuing to build that network and build the tools so that anybody can get into this. It doesn't you don't have to feel like a farmer. You can be a farmer. If you've never touched soil before, never touched a plant before, this is a, a business path and a lifestyle path and a community path. And so we see, you know, farming coming back into you know, uh, the narrative of what living and lifestyle should be in a lot of different regions. Same question to you, Bren. First of all, John, that's so cool. It's awesome. Really, really, really. Thanks, man. It's just so fun for me as a fisherman to like link with land, you know, for a fisherman to link with these, just the amount of creativity that's coming out of the land. Yeah, we should do a crossover. I know. I know. I can see shipping containers of one of your farms and then one of my buoys and lines in a hatchery. Yeah. You got any barges? We could put some on and we could uh, <laughs> exactly. double up. Exactly. But I mean, so like the supply chain thing was fascinating during COVID. Uh, you know, COVID was devastating. I had family members die. It was, But there was this other side where it forced um, some creativity. And so we we couldn't process the kelp inside. So we actually ended up processing it in uh, abandoned tobacco barns. 
And it turns out like kelp is the new tobacco, which is not a great brand, but it acted like tobacco. It dried like tobacco and it drove down processing costs like 80, 90% by using these tobacco barns. So I think a lot of innovation came out of it. I think where we'll be in, you know, 30, 40 years, I think we're going to see, quite honestly, the beginnings of there's some folks working on floating cities for refugees where you have ocean farms underneath as a major source of food. I think, you know, with seas rising, that's more farmland right, for the ocean farmer in a very, you know, sort of unfortunate way. But I think I'm going to be farming in the in Wall Street between skyscrapers at some point here. I just see those skyscrapers as anchor systems. I mean, our food system on land is in crisis. It's being pushed out to sea with, with, with droughts, wildfires, nutrient crisis. And our wild fisheries can't handle it. You know, they just can't handle that pressure. We're overfishing as it is. So farming the ocean is going to be a huge piece of it. The question is, are we going to do it right? Are we going to do it the right way? Hmm. Well, what a provocative and interesting conversation. <laughs> Thank you both for joining me. <laughs> yeah, absolute honor. Thanks for having us. Bren Smith is the executive director and co-founder of GreenWave, a nonprofit that supports ocean farmers. Bren is also the owner of Thimble Island Ocean Farm and author of Eat Like a Fish, My Adventures Farming the Ocean to Fight Climate Change. John Friedman is chief operating officer and co-founder of Freight Farms, a Boston-based ag tech company that has spearheaded container farming. Coming up, it's a thriller set not in an exotic locale, but in the mundane office cubicles of a publishing company. There, a talented young black employee suddenly finds herself in an uncomfortable competition with the newest black employee. In her debut novel, The Other Black Girl, author Zakia Dalila Harris offers up sharp social commentary with a plot critics describe as Get Out meets The Devil Wears Prada. It's our July selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar book club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Mm-hmm. 